0: Hey, you know what let's do tonight? We're going to pray, but let's stand just to honor the Lord as we pray. Father, we thank you tonight that um, uh, righteousness has uh, taken place today because there was a law that was signed uh, into law by our president. And this um, horrible practice of partial birth abortion has now been um, outlawed. Uh, now it's gonna be challenged and we expect that. But we thank you for that. We, we thank you that some uh, men took a, took a stand and uh, persisted with this and they've been working on this for years. We, we thank you for those uh, those men. We're aware of the guys we see on TV most nights, uh, the the, the Dashels and the Kennedys and all those other guys. But there are the other men that are there that are in the House of Representatives, most of whom we don't know. But you've got your men up there, and you've got them uh, strategically placed, and they stayed with it, and they worked and worked for years to fight this uh, murderous practice. And uh, this is a day of thanksgiving, and it's a day to thank you for the work that you accomplished through them. Uh, How blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And uh, we have left you in so many ways. We celebrate um, the fact that you were honored uh, today. We are grateful to live in a nation where there are still freedoms left. Uh, Although those freedoms are being uh, encroached upon, uh, there is a uh, war that is uh, never ending, and at times we get weary. But Father, help us to take courage from the godly men that we read of in the scriptures. We thank you for this Bible. So much of it is history, so much of it is biography, and it's from the lives of these men that we are to take courage. Uh, some of their lives, um, some of their lives, and some of their models uh, inspire us. Uh, others, Lord, um, nauseate us. Uh, may we be ever mindful that as we live each day we're writing a history don't let us forget that don't don't let us think that we're obscure or that we're under the radar somebody is going to read the biography of how we live even though it may never be in print somebody's going to read our story we would like that story to honor you we ask that you would give us tonight what we need Quite frankly, we don't even know what we need, but you do. Uh, you have always taken care of us. You have always provided for us. You have promised to meet our needs. We count on that promise tonight, and we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. You guys may be seated. For those of you who were here last week, um, I, I need to point something out. I was rolling through an outline, and in that outline, uh, if you took notes, and if you did, you know who you are, we, t- we used the phrase, the avenging of, and Jezebel, the avenging of. Uh, you know what, that was wrong. It, sh- it was the wrong word. One letter can make a difference. Instead of avenging on, it, or the avenging of, it should have been vengeance on. Now, I know you took those notes in ink, but I just thought I would circle back around and mention that to you. Also, I had a bad week last week up here because I remember I, at, at the end, I, I said, we come to the feet of the cross. It's not the feet of the cross, it's the foot of the cross. Um, and you think of those things I do when I'm driving home and they drive me nuts and they're on tape and they can't be expunged. <laughs> unless I get Richard Nixon's secretary and I think she's dead. So. I just thought I'd square that with you, and uh, uh, so we burned the tape. It, it's in the Frisco dump, but uh, we'll try it. Let's see how we do tonight. Um, uh, quite frankly, I'm not sure I can promise you any, any better tonight, but we'll, we'll give it a shot. If you want to screw up your family, then go ahead and disobey God. Now, how is that for a positive intro? That's sort of my theme tonight um, if you want to screw up your family go ahead and just disobey God uh, in the morning when you show up at work and you've got an issue you've got a decision to make and you can make a right decision or you can make a wrong decision if you want to screw up your family and if you want to screw up your kids and if you want to screw up your grandkids then go ahead And do the wrong thing that's what I'm getting as I read this history of the Kings that we find in Chronicles and we find in Kings Uh, as you know we are doing a study of the divided kingdom in the history of Israel first King Saul second King David third King Solomon then they have a split In the nation. Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, is king in Judah, which is the southern nation. But a guy named Jeroboam rebels, takes the northern ten tribes, and they're called Israel. And for the next generations, 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 20 kings in the north, 20 kings in the south. Uh, Out of the 40 kings, only eight could be called good. All of the kings in the north were losers. All of the kings in the north were wicked and evil. All of them disobeyed God, and all of them screwed up their families. The man is critical to the home. God has not called women to lead the family. There are good women leading families, Uh, You probably know some. I know some gals who are wonderful. I mean, they're salt of the earth, godly women leading families by themselves because the man in their life took off, cut out on them, didn't have the guts to stay with his commitment. Uh, We see this all the time in our culture. So those women, we applaud, and God applauds them. Uh, They're doing the work of two people. A single mother is doing the work of two people. And there are many godly single mothers. You know, James said that true and undefiled religion is taking care of widows and orphans. Now, we have some widows, but not to the degree that they had it in the early church. I I think we could make the application that in the church today, the widows and orphans, we take care of the widows, but... There's an application there. I, I think we, our single mothers are what the widows were in the early church. Uh, widows are women who have lost their husbands to death. Single mothers are women who have lost their husbands because their husbands are irresponsible. That's, that's the distinction I would make. When men disobey God, they screw up their family. Uh, We read these histories in Kings and Chronicles. Uh, Most of these families were unbelievably dysfunctional. You know, the holidays are coming up. Thanksgiving, Christmas, it's a time for families to get together. I'll tell you what, I would have liked to have been a fly on the wall to see some of the Christmases these families had. Now, I know they didn't have Christmas, but you know what I'm talking about? you talk about wickedness and you talk about sin and and you talk about consequences and you talk about a lack of trust and and you talk about suspicion and betrayal and jealousy see that's what that's what sin breeds that's what disobedience breeds in our lives now in our last episode i've always wanted to say that And we had an episode last week. Uh, In our last episode, we looked at one of the kings uh, of the northern kingdom, a guy named Jehu. And it was Jehu's job to eradicate and to clean out the house of Ahab, the dynasty of Ahab. So what Jehu did was that, and Jehu was just a guy in the army. He was an army commander he had to root out the family and the dynasty of Ahab because the idolatry and the wickedness had reached epidemic proportions. So what he did was, in order to eradicate Baal worship, is that he goes after Joram, who's the king of Israel, and then he goes after Ahaziah, who's king of Judah in the south. Um, He also took care of Jezebel, who was still hanging around. And the dogs licked her blood, and there was nothing left of her except the skull and the hands, and that was how God took care of her. Tonight, we're going to switch to the southern kingdom, to Judah. Because when, when um, Ahaziah was killed by Jehu, now you've got a vacuum. And, and this is a very interesting episode in the history of the southern kingdom. So tonight, I'd like you to turn me to Second Chronicles chapter 22. We're going to look at King Joash. Uh, his story is told in, uh, the beginnings of his story is, is told in uh, 2 Chronicles 22. Um, he's got an amazing story. He's got a tragic story. Um, so you've got Ahaziah that is killed by Jehu because he had gotten involved in Baal worship and was involved uh, under the uh, influence of Ahab. But this, the, the epidemic was pretty much cleaned up by Jehu. But you have a remaining piece that's in the southern kingdom. Look at 2 Chronicles 22, verse 9. Look at the last sentence. So there was no one of the house of Ahaziah to retain the power of the kingdom. Now look at verse 10. Now when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, okay, so this is his mother. Ahaziah was killed by Jehu because he's going to eradicate Baal worship. But his mother, when Athaliah saw that her son was dead, now catch this, she rose and destroyed all the royal offspring of the house of Judah. This is one wicked woman. Now, once again, if you've been with us in our study, you'll know something about this woman, Athaliah. Um, Athaliah was the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, who married Jehoram. Ahab and Jezebel were in the north, but Jehoshaphat made an alliance. Now, if you're new to this state, none of this is making sense. It's like trying to explain your family history and your family tree. Uh, you had Ahab. He made an alliance with, actually, Jehoshaphat in the south made an alliance with her, with him, married his son, Jehoram to Athaliah, who was the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. That's when everything started getting screwed up in the southern kingdom. Uh, he never should have done that, but he did it. And therefore, the principle, if you want to screw up your family, disobey God. There's all kinds of ways that we can disobey God. But one of the things he did was that he brought unbelievers, people that were opposed to God, he arranged a, an alliance. That affected his family for generations. So now Jehoram's son, Ahaziah, is is gone. So his wife, Athaliah, who's in the south, what does she do? There's a vacuum. So what does she do? This this wonderful grandmother who would who would bake peach pies and preserves and have the grandkids over, and my gosh, you wouldn't want your kids near this woman. Because she was a murderer. Why was she a murderer? She was just like her mother, Jezebel, you see. So what does she do? Her son's killed. You know, he's murdered. You'd think she'd be in grief. She was in grief. So what does she do? She, get up, she gets up and murders all the grandkids that are left. This is what you call a screwed up family. 11. So, so who is Athaliah? Uh, we're going to meet three people here. We're talking about Joash, but there are three people that have a key role in the life of King Joash. The first one is Athaliah. Athaliah, in my notes, I've got Athaliah, a godless grandmother. That's who Athaliah is. That's who she was. But there's a second woman that's in the story. Verse 11, but Jehoshabeth, The king's daughter took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him from among the king's sons who were being put to death and placed him and his nurse in the bedroom, literally in the storage room where they would keep the mattresses and the cots. So Jehoshabeth, the daughter of King Jehoram, and here's an interesting piece, the wife of Jehoiada, the priest, for she was the sister of Ahaziah. Are you getting this? It's kind of interesting. So who is this gal? Well, let's talk about Joash. He's just a little boy. His grandmother, this godless grandmother, is killing all the grandkids. But he's got an aunt. His dad's sister. Jehoshabeth. She's a godly aunt. She's a godly woman. It's amazing a godly woman could come out of this family. But God's always got a remnant. God's always, He's always got His people that have a heart for Him. So here's this godless, wicked, murderous grandmother that's slaughtering the grandkids. And here's Jehoshabeth, who is an aunt that spares the life of this little boy, Interestingly enough, she's married to Jehoiada, who's a priest. Well, we don't know. That's a possibility. We don't, he said, isn't she Athaliah's daughter? We don't know, because it doesn't say that she was Athaliah's daughter. As you know, as we've seen, the kings had a, they had a tradition of marrying more than one wife. So it doesn't specifically say whose daughter that she was. So we don't know. So we're not going to speculate. But we know that he was her father. Uh, But once again, you're talking about a dysfunctional family that's out of control. Now, that was a great question. Uh, The wife of Jehoiada the priest, for she was the sister of Ahaziah, they hid him from Athaliah so that she would not put him to death. And he was hidden with them. With who? With Athaliah and Jehoiada. She, he was hidden with them in the house of God six years while Athaliah reigned over the land. This is wild. I and mean, This is amazing stuff. This is better than anything on Fox tonight. It, it, it's better than anything on CBS. We know that for sure if you get my drift it's better than anything barbara streisand could produce let's just put it that way this is amazing stuff uh let's talk about this couple for a minute you got a godly aunt and you've got a godly uncle so this little kid this little kid joash what does he know he doesn't know anything he's a little kid he's running around he's got pampers he's got he's got Stuff leaking out of his diaper. I mean, he's just a little kid. He didn't know anything. But God knows. Uh, You know, God is sovereign over our beginnings in life. Do you know that? God's sovereign over the good. God's sovereign over the bad. God's just sovereign. Here's a kid with a godless grandmother, but he's got a godly aunt. Godly woman who married a godly man. And they are going to be key in the life of this little boy who is going to be the king and sit on the throne of David so that the promise made to David will be fulfilled. Let's talk about Jehoshaphat for a minute, this godly aunt. Uh, This was a woman who had some guts. This was a woman who had some courage. Um... You know there are times in the Bible when you read about women that had incredible courage and faith in the Lord. Do you remember when? Uh, uh, do you remember when the children of Israel were enslaved in in Egypt? And the Bible says that a king arose who did not know Joseph. He didn't know the story. He didn't know his history. All he knew was that in the land of Goshen, in that in this subdivision over there were all these Jews and they were proliferating and they were they had kids it was unbelievable so it got to a point where they there were so many of them they were outnumbering the Egyptians so they give this command that uh, what was the command anybody remember that what kill the baby boys they told the midwives if the baby if it's a boy kill them throw them in the Nile but there were some godly women, these midwives, who wouldn't do it. It was during that time. See, that was a rough time to have kids. Uh, you know, from time to time, I'll talk to people, and they say, you know, our world's, so, our world's just so screwed up. Our world's so messed up. You know, we're not going to have children. This is no world to bring a child into. Let me tell you something. The world's never been a place where you want to bring a child into because there's always been sin. There's always been evil. Can you think of a worse time to have a male child Except during that time? That's when a couple had a little boy by the name of, anybody know? Moses. But you had these godly, courageous women who would not throw the little boys into the river. They wouldn't kill them. And, and they said to the king, well, the, the, these women deliver so quick, we just aren't able to do it. They, just, they flat wouldn't do it. That took courage. That, t- that took guts. Godly women Uh, don't compromise their principles. Jehoshaphat stands in that tradition. Uh, Some of you may be aware of a lady named Amy Carmichael. She was a great woman of God who uh, went to the mission field in India. And when she got to India, she was uh, shocked to find out that in her town where her mission was set up, and they really weren't bothering her, until she found out that these Indian families would bring their uh, 7, 8, 9, 10-year-old, 11-year-old daughters to the Hindu temple and sell their daughters into prostitution. One night, a little girl showed up at her door, and she had had been branded. Just like we brand a cow in Texas, she had brand marks over her body because she had tried to escape before. And she came to Amy Carmichael's door and told her what was going on and that she was having to be a prostitute. This little girl was 12 years old. You know what Amy Carmichael did? She said, you come on in, sweetheart, and you live with me. Uh, That didn't go over real well. That wasn't real popular. And that little girl was the first. Amy Carmichael spent, uh, when she was in India, she got real ill. She was bedridden and spent most of the next 40 years in bed. But every child that ever came in, she took them in. She took them in by the hundreds. By the hun- You know the threats that were made on that woman's life? You know the courage that it took? She didn't, she didn't have any security guys around her. She didn't have any guys on the perimeter with earpieces. She had nobody except the living God. She put herself on the line. That's courage. Amy Carmichael would stand in the tradition of this godly woman, Jehoshaphat. Uh, but Jehoshabeth wasn't by herself. She married a godly man. Now, this was a time of incredible wickedness in the nation. This woman, Athaliah, is uh, like her mother. I mean, she's, she's got blood all the way up to her elbows, her own grandchildren. Wicked, godless woman. But God has always got his people. So here's this priest, Jehoiada, married to this godly woman. So what do they do? They take this little boy and they hide this little boy. Uh, that's, that's an amazing thing to me. You know this Jehoiada? You know what this guy was? This guy was a leader. I'll tell you what else this guy was. This guy was a man. This guy, when I say he was a man, you know what I mean by that? Uh, he wasn't afraid of getting hurt for what he believed. We we are raising um, we are raising in our culture. We are raising boys, and I'm making a generalization here. We we are raising boys in our culture, and. If you don't proactively work in the life of your son or grandson, that kid, that boy, is going to grow up feminized. And when I say feminized, the the hallmark trait of a boy or a man who is feminized is that they're afraid of getting hurt. Uh, I've talked about feminization before. A, a feminized male is not an effeminate male. All right. A feminized male is not a male who is drawn to other men sexually. He's not a homosexual. A feminized male is a male who has grown up primarily influenced by women. Now, women, good women, they love boys, they love little boys. But because a woman has never been a boy, women tend not to understand boys. Uh, There's a big difference between boys and girls. Have you noticed this? If you had a boy and a girl in your home, you saw an unbelievable difference between a boy and between a girl because god has made them to be so different i have told this before and bear with me there's a reason i'm going to tell it again over the last i don't know 10 years from time to time i've had this happen more than once i've talked to a single mom i've had a single mom come up to me on more than one occasion and they're very concerned because their son wants to play football and and i said well tell me your concern well i don't want him to play football I said, well, tell me why you don't want him. To... He's, he's 11 years old, okay? Why don't you want him to play football? Because he might get hurt. And what I've said to them, I said, I said, ma'am, it's not that he might get hurt. He will get hurt. That's one of the purposes of football. That's why it was invented, for, for men to get crippled so they can't walk past the time of 35. It's just a wonderful uh, uh, Christian tradition that we've developed. I don't want him to play football because he might get hurt. No, he will get hurt. Well, that's why I don't want him to play. Yes, but you see, you've got to rethink that. Well, why do I have to rethink it? Well, let me ask you this. Do you want your son? You're raising this boy without your husband. That's right. I'm very concerned about this. All right. And I know you're concerned. And God knows you're concerned. Do you want your son to grow up to be a godly man? I sure do. Do you want your son to grow up and be a godly husband? Yes. Well, Ephesians 5 says husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and what? Gave himself up for her. Uh, You know what that means? Jesus went to the cross for the church. Jesus got beat up for the church. Jesus got whipped for the church. Jesus had spikes driven through his wrists and his feet for the church. Jesus had internal hemorrhaging for the church. In other words, Jesus was not afraid of getting hurt for the church. And the scripture tells me, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. And I'll tell these ladies, the reason I think you should consider letting your son play football is that if you instill in your son a fear of getting hurt, When he grows up, he won't be able to love his wife as Christ loved the church because the driving force in his life will be that he doesn't want to get hurt. It's his job to get hurt. It's his job to take the blows. It's his job to put himself on the line. That's called bravery. That's called masculinity. That's called being willing to die for something. My friend, Stu Weber, some of you guys know Stu. He serves on the board at Dallas Seminary. He's a pastor up in Oregon. Stu was a Green Beret, counterintelligence, uh, wrote a book, great book called Tender Warrior. I always say about Stu, he knows 17 different ways to kill you, and he does. But, but Stu is uh, Stu's a warrior, but he's a tender warrior. If Stu had stayed in the military, he'd be a general. He spends a lot of his time going around. And speaking to the top brass in the military because he's one of them. He's a special forces guy. One of his closest friends is General Boykin. You see. The video that's going around that you're seeing on the news, that was Boykin speaking in Stu's church in Oregon. You see. Uh, Boykin's been wounded and shed blood for this country. He's taken shrapnel, he carries shrapnel in his body for this country. The guy who's after him, and the guy who's hunting him, I don't think he's done that, you know. Uh, Boykin's a man who's willing to die for something, and is willing to stand up for what he believes. And he's taken unbelievable heat, you see. Uh, He's just the first of many. Because as the culture continues to be anti-God and anti-Bible, the heat's going to be turned up. So the question is, what kind of men are we going to be? What kind of men are we going to be when someone at work takes issue with something that we believe and something that we say privately in our church? See, because you guys, you know it's coming. You see. Uh, this Jehoiada, uh, th- this, this couple, th- these people amaze me. I- I've been thinking about them this week. Well, let, me, let me note a couple things about them. Um. By hiding this little boy, they took an incredible chance. They took an incredible risk. Um, But but you know what impresses me about these people? They did not let fear keep them from doing what was right. That's a great temptation. We get fearful. A, A lot of times, we know what's right. We don't do it. Why? We're fearful what will happen if we do what's right. How many times in the Scripture do you read the the words, fear not? How many wrong moves have been made? How many decisions of disobedience have been made because they were fueled by and motivated by fear? God says, fear not. And you know what this couple did? Did they have a little bit of anxiety? Did they have a little bit of fear? Yeah, but they didn't let the fear control them. They didn't let the fear keep them from doing what's right. Guys, I'm telling you, this is an issue we're all going to have to face because the heat's being turned up. It's been convenient in America for 200 years to be a Christian. Not anymore. You see it coming, and I see it coming. This couple, you know what this couple did? They walked by faith every day for seven years. You'll see what I mean here in a minute. Because for seven years, they hid this kid. You know, I thought about this this week. I've been reading it. I mean, you know, there had to have been some close calls. How in the world do you hide a three-year-old? I mean, you can only keep that kid in the closet in the storage unit so long. There are other kids, you know, there are other... There are priests in the temple and all this stuff, and you've got all this stuff going, the kids are playing. But you know every day they were walking on eggshells. What if it gets out? What? If, because if it got out, it was their heads. Just like that. They did what was right, and God honored their faithfulness. Now, let's go to the next chapter. Because here, it gets real interesting. Um... This King Joash, he had a sovereign foundation, and God sovereignly worked in his life. There was a grandmother that wanted to kill him. God put a couple of people around him who were fearless to save his life. Now, we come to chapter 23, and what's going to happen is there's going to be a sovereign coronation. Uh, 23, verse 1. Now, in the seventh year, seventh year of what? Of the life of Joash... In the seventh year Jehoiada strengthened himself I love that Um, why did he strengthen himself because he's getting ready to pull off a coup he's getting ready to take on this wicked godless woman and remove her from power he's a priest he has sworn allegiance to God to uphold the law to uphold the greatness of God, to not bow before a pagan, this, this guy did not believe in maintenance. This guy did not believe in status quo. This guy had already risked everything. Now, now, he's going, now this guy's going crazy. He's just going to let it all go. And you know what? His wife was behind him. She knew about this. So what's what's this guy going to do? This is an amazing story. In the seventh year, Jehoiada strengthened himself. He had to to muster up his courage. He said, all right, Lord. Lord, I believe this is what you want me to do. You know he had some trepidation. You know he had some anxiety. Lord, it's the right thing. I'm going to step out, Lord. I'm going to ask you to go with me. I'm going to ask you to go ahead of me. I'm going to ask you to honor me. And and every step was... uh, was dangerous, because the moment that he let some others in on what was going on, he had made himself unbelievably vulnerable. It just took one guy, it took one Judas here to screw this whole thing up and to kill him and his wife. In the seventh year, Jehoiada strengthened himself and took captains of hundreds. There are five captains that he approaches, and these guys are all listed in chapter 23, verse 1. And what he does is he goes to these five captains, and each of these guys are captains of hundreds. They are officers. They are strategic men in the military. And he tells them that he's got the heir to the throne back in the storage room. That little kid running around with the curls and the snot coming out of his nose, that's the king who's supposed to be on the throne of David. Now, every time he tells one of these guys, he puts himself at risk. But you know what happens? He enters into a covenant with them. Three times in chapter 23, covenants are going to be made. The first covenant is made in 23.1 with the captains. These guys sign on. These guys say, we'll follow you as you follow the Lord. We're going to get rid of this woman. Let's put David's heir on the throne. So a covenant is made with the captains. Uh, Verse 2. And they went throughout Judah and gathered the Levites from all the city of Judah. Who are the Levites? They're the priests. So they're getting the guys that follow the Lord and the heads of the fathers' households of all Israel, and they came to Jerusalem. So they get the priests not only in Judah, but in Israel. They go to the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. And they all came to Jerusalem. Uh, Verse 3. Then all the assembly made a covenant with the king in the house of the Lord, in the house of God. So here's the second covenant. First covenant is with the five captains. Then he goes to all the priests. Now, if one of these priests was a bad apple, this whole thing was over with. But God was gracious and God was good. They bring all these guys in, and now they make a covenant with this king, with this little boy in the house of God. And Jehoiada said to them, Behold, the king's son shall reign as the Lord has spoken concerning the sons of David. And then he starts giving instruction. This is the thing you shall do. One-third of you, of the priests and Levites who come in on the Sabbath, shall be gatekeepers. See, this is the strategy now. He's laying out the plan. And one-third shall be at the king's house, and a third at the gate of the foundation. And all the people shall be in the courts of the house of the Lord. But let no one enter the house of the Lord except the priests and the ministering Levites, that they may enter, for they are holy, and let all the people keep the charge of the Lord. And the Levites will surround the king, each man with his weapons in his hand, and whoever enters the house, let him be killed. Thus be with the king when he comes in and when he goes out. So, verse 8, all the Levites and all Judah did according to all that Jehoiada the priest commanded. So they lay out this plan, because what they're going to do is they're going to put this little kid in the temple, and he's got everybody stationed, the third over here, third there, third there. And they're going to anoint this little kid to be king of Judah and follow in the line of David verse 11 then they brought out the king's son and put the crown on him little kid little 7 year old kid and that's great but you see he's got royal blood running through his veins he's part of the covenant promise that god made with david that one of your sons shall always be on the throne um So they put this look at 11 they brought out the king's son put a crown on him gave him the testimony and made him king and jehoiada and his sons anointed him anointed this little boy and said long live the king now this is great when athaliah heard the noise of the people running and praising the king she came into the house of the lord to the people and she looked and behold the king was standing by his pillar at the entrance and the captains and the trumpeters were beside the king And all the people of the land rejoiced and blew trumpets, the singers with their musical instruments, leading the praise. Then Athaliah tore her clothes and said, treason, treason. Yeah, right. That's like Ahab meeting Elijah and saying to Elijah, you troubler of Israel. What do you mean? You're the trouble. You talk about treason, you're the one who's committed treason. So she calls out treason, treason. And Jehoiada the priest brought out the captains of hundreds who were appointed over the army and said to them bring her out between the ranks and Whoever follows her put to death with the sword for the priest said let her not be put to death in the house of the Lord So they seized her when she arrived at the entrance of the horse gate of the king's house. They put her to death there Now verse 16 you got the third covenant first covenant was with the captain second covenant with the king verse 16 then Jehoiada made a covenant between himself and all the people and the king, that they should be the Lord's people. This is a covenant with the Lord Almighty of Israel, of Judah. And all the people, 17, went to the house of Baal. Because who had brought Baal in? The family and dynasty of Ahab, namely Athaliah. They went to the house of Baal, tore it down, they broke in pieces his altar and his images. And they killed Maitan, the priest of Baal, before the altars. Moreover, Jehoiada placed the offices of the house of the Lord under the authority of the Levitical priest, whom David had assigned. Once again, the law is put into place, just like Jehoshaphat had done. He's putting in the priest, he's putting in the law of God so that common sense and wisdom can prevail in, in the land once again. And so you read about this. Look at verse 21. You have this reformation, Baal is wiped out, Athaliah is is killed, they got a new king, verse 21. So all of the people of the land rejoiced, and the city was quiet, for they had put Athaliah to death with the sword. That's an amazing coup. And it all was the result of a man and a woman who had the courage to put their lives on the line and trust God with everything that they had. you got to admire these folks, don't you? You ever had somebody come after you for your faith? You ever had somebody mock you because you're a Christian? You ever had somebody try to embarrass you because you're a believer? That's not fun, and that's not comfortable. But uh, when we were in England, we are having dinner one night, i tell you what, dinner's expensive in England. Everything's expensive in England. And we went uh, out in the countryside, and we were having dinner one night at this old castle. And it was it was pretty nice. It was nicer than I realized, quite frankly. And uh, got in there and looked at it, and, and I mean, I wasn't going to get up and leave. So, But um, the tables were real close together. And this couple came and was seated right next to, I mean, there wasn't that, I could reach out and touch them. They were that close. And uh, real, real, you know, friendly couple, we start talking, and I imagine they were in their 30s, and um, uh, he was from Scotland, and I, I really had trouble, quite frankly, understanding the guy. But uh, real nice guy, and he, he worked over, he flew over all the time, he, he said, I come to Texas a lot, and so we're just talking. And... Uh, well, they come and they serve our food. And and I'm going to be honest with you guys. We always pray before we eat dinner. And we started, and I'm going to be honest with you. You know what? I didn't pray. I didn't do it. Because, I, you know, those people are right there. And and I ate, and then I started to pray, and I said, well, I should have prayed. At the beginning, and, and I just didn't pray. I just went ahead and ate. And you know what? I was, I mean, I'll tell you what, I was really hacked at myself. Because, you know, there are people in the Sudan who are sold into slavery because of Christ. There are, uh, I, I want to tell you something, I humiliated myself. Now, nobody in the restaurant knew. I just knew it before the Lord. I, I, I'm i telling you, I was shamed by what I had done. And, and later that night, when we were going to bed, I told Mary, I said, Mary, let me tell you what I did there. Did you notice I didn't pray? She said, yeah. I said, that couple was so close. You know what I did? I was ashamed to pray. I was a wuss. I absolutely punted. I had no guts. I was a gelding for Christ tonight. I had no I mean, so I got a whip, and I started whipping myself. and, No. I I I mean I got to tell you something. I was really ashamed. I was ashamed. So the next night, the next day, we're at the British Museum. People are crammed in. There's a food court. You can get pizza, whatever. There are people everywhere. And he gives us another shot. Um, I remember when I was a kid. Go out, we go. That's probably eight years old. And we went out to dinner afterwards after church. You know, everyone goes out to dinner. And we were in this restaurant outside of Bakersfield. It was this chicken place, and the great fried chicken. And I remember we were sitting there, and this old gentleman, probably 85 years old. They had probably 10, 15 people around the table. I'll never forget it, because all of a sudden, everyone, you know, we're talking. All of a sudden, this this old gentleman stands up and says to his family, "Let us pray before God, our Maker." And he says, "Lord Jesus," we, he stands in the restaurant. Says, Lord Jesus, we come to you and thank you for your goodness and your provision. We thank you that we could worship you today in a free the whole restaurant just freezes. It was great. <laughs> Maybe I'll do that Sunday. Down there at Chili's. We'll try that next Sunday. You know, if we all did that in Frisco, we'd all get arrested. Wouldn't that be great, guys? We wouldn't get arrested, but and that's I'm not saying that's pro. I'm just saying, you know what. Let's not be afraid to stand when it's appropriate. I didn't do it. That lit a fire into me to make sure I don't back off. Let's go to 24. You guys still there? Still with me? Okay. We're going to move fast here, okay? Uh, God sovereignly set up Joash um, so that he would sit on the throne of David and that the Davidic covenant could be fulfilled in this generation. Look at 24.1. Joash was seven years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. A good, long run. And his mother's name was Zabiah from Beersheba. And look at verse 2. This is quite a statement. And Joash did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada the priest. That's interesting, isn't it? Isn't that interesting? Uh, Joash did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada the priest. And then we look at verse 3. And Jehoiada took two wives for him, and he became the father of sons and daughters. Now let's say this. Jehoiada shouldn't have taken two wives. But you see, here, even a godly man, Jehoiada, caved in a little bit. I'm sure he thought, if I just get him two wives, that'll be pretty good. Because all these other guys have got hundreds of wives. Now, he should have just gotten him one wife because of Deuteronomy 17, 17, that the king was just to have one wife, but he got him two, all right? Now, verse 4, now, Joash is growing up, uh, and it came about after this that Joash decided to restore the house of the Lord. Why was he going to restore the house of the Lord? Because with all the Baal worship and with all the abuse spiritually, they had ransacked the temple that Solomon had built and they had, uh, uh, they had robbed it, and they had taken the valuables and all this different... So he's going to restore it. And he gathered the priests and the Levites and said to them, Go out to the cities of Judah, collect money from all Israel, to repair the house of your God annually, and you should do the matter quickly. But the Levites did not act quickly. So the king summoned Jehoiada, the pre- priest, and said to him, Why have you not required the Levites to bring in from Judah and from Jerusalem the, le- the levy fixed by Moses? In other words... They were supposed to have been paying a tax or a tithe, and they weren't doing it. And the priest, he ordered them, go get this, tell these people to bring in the money. Well, they didn't do it. So he rebukes them, and finally they go do it. Verse 7, for the sons of the wicked Athaliah had broken into the house of God and even used the holy things of the house of the Lord for the bales. So they go on and talk about the fact they made a chest, and people would bring in their money, and they would give their gifts. Look at verse 11. And it came about whenever the chest was brought into the king's officers by the Levites. And when they saw that there was much money, then the king's scribe and chief priest officers would come, empty the chest, take it, and return it to its place. Thus they did daily and collected much money. Uh, the, the people were thrilled. They wanted the temple. It was the place where, where God dwelt. They wanted God to be honored. So the people gave, and they gave generously, and they gave continually. And God was blessing, and you can read in the following verses how they restored and they worked and they did all this wonderful uh, uh, refurbishing of the temple, which was which had been built under Solomon was the most wonderful place on the face of the earth. So this guy instituted reform. Now let's go to verse fifteen, because verse fifteen uh, we're going to see a shift that's going to occur here. And we're going to see the true nature of the heart of King Joash. Okay? Up till now, you got to say, Joash, well, what's your impression of Joash up to now? I'd say pretty good. This guy's pretty stout. This guy's pretty stellar. He's got a good start. Obviously, Jehoiada has had a great influence on him as his mentor. Verse 15. Now when Jehoiada reached a ripe old age, he died. He was 130 years old at his death. No one for a thousand years in the Bible had lived that long. God blessed him with 130 years. Isn't that something? God honored him. You know, there's a lot of ways God can honor a man for being faithful to the word of God. Verse 16, And they buried him in the city of David among the kings because he had done well. Isn't that good? See, was he a king? No. He was a what? He was a priest. But they buried him with the kings because he had done well. What is it that we want to hear when we stand before Jesus? Well done. Well done. And we're going to stand before Jesus. Wouldn't it be great to have Jesus? You know, I I can't prove this. I mean, it's highly suspect. But I wouldn't be surprised if Mary and I stand together. I don't know this. But we're a team, you know? Um, We may not, but let's say we did. You know what we'd like the Lord to say to us? Well done. Well done. You know, Mark Twain used to say that uh, he could live off a good compliment for 60 days. You know, if Jesus says, well done, you can live off that for eternity. Because that's all that matters. You don't need anything else. You just need to hear Jesus say, well done. This guy, this guy was buried among the kings because he had done well in, uh, in Israel and to God in his house. Now catch this. Here's a pivot. But after the death of Jehoiada, the officials of Judah came and bowed down to the king, and the king listened to them. And they abandoned the house of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and served the Asherim and the idols. So wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for this their guilt. There's a complete shift in this guy's life. Uh, Joash, has been, he's been doing well. He's been standing for the Lord and standing for the right things. Jehoiada dies, and suddenly everything changes. Let's see what happens with him. So God sends judgment. Yet, verse 19, yet he, meaning God, sent prophets to them to bring them back to the Lord. Who? Joash and the officials. Though they testified against them, they would not listen. Then the Spirit of God came on Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest. So now you got Jehoiada's son, Zechariah, And he's going to go, and he's going to speak to the king, and he's going to confront him. And he stood above the people and said to them, Thus God has said, and he stood above the people and said to them, Why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord and do not prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he also has forsaken you. So they, meaning the officials and the king, conspired against him, and at the command of the king, they stoned him to death, in the court of the house of the Lord. You talk about a pivot. You talk about a change. Thus Joash the king, this is, this is whose son? Jehoiada, who risked his life and the life of his wife for Joash. Thus Joash the king did not remember the kindness which his father Jehoiada had shown him, but he murdered his son. And as he died, Zechariah, he said, May the Lord see and avenge. Well, the Lord did see and avenge. Uh, if you read 23 down through 27, you'll see that the army of the Arameans came up against him at the turn of the year. And um, look at 24. Indeed, the army of the Arameans came with a small number of men, yet the Lord delivered a very great army. What army? The army of Judah into their hands. Because they, Why did he do that? Because they had forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers. Thus they es- executed judgment on Joash. Let me go back to our principle. If you want to screw up your family, then disobey God. There's the principle once again. Verse 25, now what happens is uh, uh, Joash gets judged here. Look at 25, and when they had departed from him, for they left him very sick. In other words, they wounded him in battle. He was severely wounded. His own servants conspired against him because of the blood of the son of Jehoiada the priest and murdered him on his bed. So he died, and they buried him in the city of David, but they did not bury him in the tomb of the king's. He was a king, but they refused to put him in there because of who he was. So who was this guy? See, in his heart, he was no different than Ahab. In his heart, he was no different than Jezebel. What a change. What a shock. This guy made a pivot. This guy made a a, a, a turn that is absolutely astonishing. I wasn't going to do this, but I'm going to do it. I, I, on Saturday, I picked up the New York Times. And there's an article on the front page on Dick Gephardt. Um, and it shows the family Christmas card from last year, and, uh, which is an interesting Christmas card. And then it starts telling uh, Gephardt's story. And it's, it's quite a fascinating story. It's on the front page, and then it's continued on A11. And uh, then I found another uh, story on Gephardt, and um, I'll I'll read this one. Uh, This one is um, uh, out of Slate. It says, in 1977, Gephardt, then a freshman congressman, endorsed a constitutional amendment to ban abortion. Did you know that? I didn't know it. He was a freshman. He didn't say he was pro-life. He wanted a constitutional amendment. I would say this guy was uh, extremely pro-life. This guy was convinced that abortion was wrong if he asked for a constitutional amendment. Right? That was in 1977. Oh, he proclaimed, life is the division of human cells, a process which begins at conception. Gephardt said it in 1977. Uh, and they have that under the heading of FLIP. Then the next paragraph, they have a heading called FLOP. And it says, in 1986, Gephardt told the Missouri pro-life organization that he had changed his mind and would support abortion rights. And then there's the next heading, the next paragraph says, Context. In January 2003, Gephardt explained, I was raised in a working-class family of Baptist faith. Raised in a Christian home. I, I, did you say poor him? Well, it could be. It depends on what kind of family and what they believed and all that. But but let me tell you something. There are some Baptist families that are wonderful families that teach the Scriptures and live out the Scriptures. There are Baptist families that are legalistic and are harsh. and You know what I'm saying, right? But this guy knew the truth. See, I had to ask the question, why was he so strong on abortion? Obviously, he'd been influenced. And when I read this... And then I went on and read the article in the Times. I read about the influence of his mother that was so strong, she was praying that he would go into ministry, and he almost became a youth pastor. You see? Uh, It goes on, and he says, I went to college on a church scholarship where the early teachings were reinforced. Abortion was wrong, I was taught. During my first decade in Congress, my eyes were opened. Opened by friends and colleagues and by strangers. I find that interesting by women I didn't know and would never meet again, and by members of my close family. Um, they raised... Oh, oh i, I, I got to read this. Uh, but nearly every woman I met had a story to tell from their own life or that of a friend, and it became clear that clear morality was not on one side or the other. Wait a minute, Dick. You said life is the division of human cells, a process which begins at conception. You want a constitutional amendment. But suddenly it's not clear. What's clear is that it's not clear. Uh, 86, took nine years. Then he goes on and says, uh, there are other questions like, what are, what are our responsibilities to our, ch- our, to our children, existing and yet to come, to our partners, ourselves. This is classic. The sanctity of a woman's right to control her own destiny is a moral force of its own. The sanctity. The sanctity. That's heresy. That's wicked. It's wrong. I came to realize that the question of choice is to be answered not by the state, but by the individual. No, it's to be answered by God, you see. Uh, as I read the story, and then it goes on and it talks about Gephardt's flip and his change and his evolution and that early on he was against any kind of uh, support for homosexual unions and all this, you know, domestic partner and all this, and but see, he's changed, and he has a daughter Who was married but then divorced her husband and is in a relationship with another woman. And what this article is about is the fact that his daughter is representing him and they have a difference of opinion because his his daughter is for gay marriage but he's not there. He has a conviction that that's not right. Let me make a prediction. And, and it doesn't take a prophet to make the prediction, does it? Does it? You see, guys, it's a slippery slope. When you leave clear truth, when you leave biblical revelation on one point, you're going to leave it on the next point, and then on the next point, and then on the next point. The next point. I want to draw four contrasts. <coughs> Excuse me. As we close here, as we wrap it up, okay? I want to draw four contrasts. Hey, let me ask you something. How many of you guys in the next five years um, have a goal that you want to get emotionally involved with some gal at work? And then you want to have sexual intercourse with her, and you want to divorce your wife and abandon your kids, grandkids, and screw up your life. Obviously, nobody. Somebody in here will do that. I don't know. You say, how do you know? I don't know. I, I just, I seemed to see a pattern. That whenever I'm with a group of men, for about every hundred men, and I can't prove this, but it seems to me for about every hundred guys, out of that hundred guys 3 to 5 to 7 of those guys within 5 years will pivot like Joe Ash pivoted and they'll disobey and they'll screw up their families you might be on your way and nobody knows it because you might have a hidden life and you might have a secret life and there may be sin that you're covering, and that you're hiding. Uh, if you don't kill that sin, that sin will kill you. You can't handle it. Uh, you're feeding it. you got to starve it, and you got to cut it off. And, and, and you may be embarrassed and ashamed for that, and that's understandable. But don't let the embarrassment of what you've done up to now keep you from doing what's right. James says, confess your sin one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. If there's hidden sin in your life, one of the ways the enemy traps you is that you're afraid that someone will find out. Can I say this to you? Someone needs to find out. God already knows. You confess that sin to the Lord, but sins that have a grip on you—you've got to go confess to someone you can trust, who's mature in Christ. Because when you go confess what to a friend who can be trusted, what you don't want anyone to know, you have just outflanked Satan, and he's got nothing on you anymore. Does that make sense, guys? He wants to take you out, and he wants to take me out. That's just the fact of that. We are in spiritual warfare. Do you love your family? Of course. Do I love my family? Of course. Would you ever do anything to hurt them? No, you say. But guys do it all the time. And how do they do that? How do they make the leap of leaving their wife and kids and taken off with some Botox-injected, plastic-rear-ended, silicon-breasted, facelifted chick. You can't keep up with a woman like that. She'll kill you. She'll break you financially, number one. How does a guy make a leap? Does he just decide, I'm going to go do it? I don't think so. I think there are steps in between of disobedience, that start small and get big. I think that's how it happens. For contrast, between these two men that we've looked at, Jehoiada and Joash. Here's the first contrast. Jehoiada was deep and wide. Joash was shallow and narrow. You guys... uh, Go to Sunday school when you are little kids? Remember the song? Deep and wide, deep and wide. There's a fountain going. Let's stand and sing that together. <laughs> Remember that song? Okay, deep and wide. When I say Jehoiada was deep and wide, I mean he was deep and wide like the Mississippi. He had depth, and he was wide spiritually. He was a force for God. That's what he was. Uh, His protege, who he put his life on the line for, Joash, was shallow and narrow. Jehoiada was the Mississippi. Joash, in his heart, was a dry creek bed. Shallow, narrow, no force whatsoever. Easily influenced. Second contrast, Jehoiada was building spiritual capital. Joash was living off his spiritual capital. When I say his, I don't mean Joash's, I mean Jehoiada's. I'll give you that again. Jehoiada was building spiritual capital. He was investing in the kingdom of God. Joash was living off Jehoiada's spiritual capital. It's possible to live off the faith of other people. You know what strikes me about Gephardt? I read this article. He lived off the faith of his mother. See? He, he, he did it all right. He was the golden boy in the Baptist church. Said the right things, did the right things, went to the right school, but it wasn't in his heart. You know the other guy that was raised in an evangelical Christian home, went to a Christian college, was going to go into ministry? was a guy named Gary Hart. comes from the same denomination that James Dobson comes from. You see? But these guys live off the faith of their parents. They live off the spiritual capital of their grandparents and their great-grandparents, but it's not in their own heart. Third observation, or third contrast between these two men. Uh, Jehoiada was a leader. Joash was a follower. Jehoiada was a leader, Joash was a follower. That's just pretty crystal clear. The day that Jehoiada died, Joash checked out. Fourth observation, Jehoiada built his life on the rock. It's Matthew 7, 24. Joash built his life on the what? On the sand. What did Jesus say in Matthew 7? Talked about two men. One man built his house on the rock. Another man built his house on the storm, or on the sand. And when the storms came, well, you know what happened. See, every man's life has a foundation. Uh, Your life has a foundation. My life has a foundation. Gephardt's life has a foundation. Uh, George Bush's life has a foundation. Uh, Ted Kennedy's life has a foundation, Bill Clinton's life has a foundation, Billy Graham's life has a foundation. Every man is building on something. It's fascinating, isn't it, that a man who wasn't even a king was buried with the kings. And a man who was a king was not allowed To be near them. It's an issue of heart, guys. And it's an issue of foundation. So Lord, we soberly bow before you. We know our own hearts that we're prone to wander and we're prone to leave the God we love. Lord, I uh, pray for each man here. Lord, I I pray that you would... um, enable us to ruthlessly evaluate ourselves. Um, that, that we would not coddle ourselves or be uh, gentle with ourselves or be um, or cut ourselves some slack when it comes to where our heart is. That, that we might take a good hard look, that we might run a spiritual EKG on where we are right now? Where are we in terms of compromising with disobedience? Where are we with decisions that need to be made that quite frankly are clear, but we are clouding them by rationalization? Lord, I don't know where these guys are. They don't know where I am. We just stand before you. You know every man's heart in this room. I pray for each of us that we might follow the example of Jehoiada. Uh, Some of us, Lord, we have unbelievable spiritual capital in our families because of our great-grandparents and our grandparents and our parents. We have an unbelievable heritage. That heritage can't save us. Only Christ can save us. May we not live off the capital of the past, Make us deep and make us wide and make us a force for you that runs in your banks. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.